Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are going to study the second half of the ninth chapter of the Maimer Va'ata Tetzaveh. If you're joining me for the first time, <laughs> it's um, a suggestion or maybe urging you to go back and listen to the previous episodes because, in truth, one cascades into the next and really it is a continuation. Having said that, I believe that what we will study today does have, uh, if you will, value or meaning in and of itself. That is to say, if you choose not to watch any of the previous episodes and you only choose to stay with me for a little while today, I think you'll learn something remarkable. Now, if I may, I want to just interject a, like a, a personal kind of uh, observation. Many, many of the things that the Rebbe said and taught were not new. In fact, the Rebbe maintained that almost nothing he said was new. He pioneered this idea of footnoting everything that he published. So if you wanted to know where he got it from, as many scholars in the past would kind of hide their sources, the Rebbe was very happy to give you all of the sources. In fact, he once told the chief rabbi of Montreal, Rav Pinchas Hirschsprung, he said to him, Rabbi Hirschbrunn told the Rebbe that he learns the Kutusichas. There's a video of this, this is public. It's out of Fabrengen. And the Rebbe says, You learn the Kutusichas? And he says, Yeah. And he said, I especially enjoy the footnotes and the sources. And the Rebbe says, I footnote and source everything. And, and the Rebbe su suggested that when a person would take the time to look at the sources, even if he didn't learn the Rebbe's, so to speak, chiddush or novelty, the very fact that he looked into holy svarim, beginning with the words of the scripture and the words of our sages, through the words of the Geonim and the Rishonim and the Achronim, the Rebbe said, in the meantime, here he learned the Gemara, here he learned the Tesefta, here he learned the Machilta, and so on and so forth. And the Rebbe does a lot of sourcing and a lot of copious footnoting. And many of the things that are found in the Maimorim, there is Maimorim, are based on the teachings of, of his predecessors, of the previous six Arbeim, going back to the teachings of the Magad and the Balshemtev. What we are about to learn today, despite the footnotes and the sources, is, unless I'm totally not understanding this, is absolutely novel. That people want to say, so, okay, tell me something the Rebbe taught. Like, what, what, something that was unique, like, like a, a, a new idea, a totally new concept in 
or re new understanding in Jewish mysticism and Hasidus and spirituality. If you're looking for that, if that's something that, that uh, kind of grabs your attention or piques your curiosity, I want to tell you that we're about to study today, despite the sources and despite the footnoting, is absolutely novel to the point that it's like mind-blowing. This is, is mind-blowing stuff. And on the surface, it, it, it almost didn't even make any sense to me. I, I just couldn't understand it. And I, I've come to somewhat of an understanding. I hope, I hope that I have it right. I, I don't know, of course. I can only hope and pray. I spoke to people wiser, older, and more learned than I. So I'm doing the best that I can to share with you the Rebbe's Mimer during this auspicious time of the year. And those of you who are watching on Facebook, I'm going to encourage you to jump over to YouTube, only because when you have questions, you're welcome to post them on the chat. Not, of course, ridiculous uh, comments that have nothing to do with the subject, but if you have actually real questions, I'm going to try to respond to them to the best of my ability. Okay, so with no further ado, this, this, uh, this teaching, which I call True Will, is a continuation of what we learned in the previous episode, because this is the second half of one paragraph. And although the paragraph is actually divided in two, I took you into the second paragraph. I took you um, about, I don't know, I'll call it 15% um, into the next paragraph. And I, and I broke, and you'll soon see why I broke, because I, I, I felt that this was something that had to be addressed independently. In our previous episode, which I, I dubbed Shaken, Not Stirred, the Rebbe suggests, in fact teaches, that the idea that Galut has a silver lining. Now, Galut's not a good thing. On a very literal level, we understand Galut in the metaphor of children who are banished from home. I'm not talking about grown-up children. I'm talking about children, children. There is nothing more painful to a child than his or her father or mother ignoring them. It can drive a kid crazy. Give a, a parent, a father or mother giving a child silent treatment is far more effective than any other kind of disciplinary measure. Children crave their parents' attention. They want their parents' love and affection. It's something that touches them to the very core. Of course, then they become teenagers and everything changes. But this is how children are. Now, we are metaphorized as children in our relationship with God. And specifically, we're, we're depicted in the image of small children. As the verse says, Kinar Yisrael God says that the Jewish children are people of Israel, nation. It's like small children. And I love them. The small children are petulant and sometimes insolent, demanding, unreasonable, immature, clueless. We at various times in our own personal <laughs> as well as national history have laid claim to these titles par excellence. But Hashem still loves us. Just as parents still love their children. So golos means golu me'al shulchan avihim. Our father and mother sit down to dinner, but we're not allowed at the table. 
Maybe we're up in our bedroom. Maybe we're in the backyard. We're not allowed in. And the child desperately wants to feel that affection, attention, and closeness. And he very much yearns to be back at the table. The table, of course, is a metaphor for the Mizbeach, for the altar in the Beis HaMikdash, the, the dining room, the place of familial oneness and affection and togetherness is the holy temple, the Beis HaMikdash itself. And there are other metaphors that are used to describe the relationship with God and the Jewish people, which include the metaphor of uh, love that is spousal and the idea of intimacy and the holy of holies, like, like the bedroom and so on and so forth. But we're going to talk about now this idea of, of, of children because it's, it's uh, sometimes Galut's talk is described in terms of an estranged spouse, a separation. And sometimes Banim Shagolu Me'al Shulchan So let's use the metaphor of children. We, we desperately want to sit at our father's table, but we behave badly. There's a reason we were sent away. And that Galut reality has a way of bringing forth the love that we didn't know we had. When we were petulant, when we were disrespectful, when we were rebellious and disloyal, we didn't feel that love. We took it for granted. And now we're in the backyard. <laughs> and we want to get in. And we're knocking on the door. And we're saying, come on, this is not fair. I'm your child, after all. So there's a silver lining. Taking this metaphor like, to the further or next progression, we utilize the biblical language of kosis, which the Rebbe pointedly translates into Yiddish. Not as crushed. Big mistake, in my humble opinion. Huge mistake. People are using this terminology all the time when it comes to this mimer. God does not want you to be crushed. Crushed spirits are bad. The Rebbe uses the word tzutreselt, shaken. You're not ambivalent. You're not indifferent. Sometimes we hear something, become aware of something, and we are shaken. We've all had that experience. You know, there's a story they tell about, about a young boy who came to his father with a bag full of change. And he said to the father, I, uh, I want to give you all this money. And the father said, why? He said, because I, I know you're a very busy man, and you keep saying time is money. But I really want some of your time. So how much does it cost to buy an hour of your time? It's a very powerful story. It might even be true. And if it isn't true, actually, it's true figuratively. And the first time I heard the story, I was shaken. It just like makes you, hey, one second. My children actually want my time. We, we need to be responsive as parents. Are we giving our children our undivided attention? especially in today's day and age when people are sitting with devices at the dinner table. It's awful. You're not even looking at each other when you speak. We need to be there for our spouses. We need to be there for our friends. Being present, very important. So there's a thing you can hear, like a story, a vignette that shakes you. That's a good thing. It's good to be shaken out of indifference. It's good to be shaken out of ambivalence. Maimonides, 
describes the sound of the shofar in Rosh Hashanah as a sound that is jarring, a, sa- a sound that shakes us up, or if you will, rouses us from our slumber. So the question is, do we become used to the Galut situation? Do we just throw the towel and give it up? Stop fighting. Stop struggling. Stop trying. Just like, you know, why bother? And invariably, throughout the course of Jewish history, there's been tremendous persecution. And when there was ability to jump ship, there were some Jews who jumped ship. Not in droves, but there were people who couldn't stand the pressure. And truth be told, it's not for any of us to judge them. Objectively speaking, what they did is wrong. But who are we to judge an individual? Who knows what we would have done had we been faced with the same pressures? At the same time, there was many people who responded to these awful, terrible situations with a fierce devotion to God and Yiddishkeit. A devotion that was far more fierce and far more intense than during times of plenty. In the previous understanding of this idea of kosis, which means shaken, perhaps once was understood as crushed, that brought us lamaor. So literally in the biblical metaphor, it's olives that are pulverized or crushed so that their oil is revealed. People persecuted, people who are hounded, people who suffer and are tortured for their Jewish identity, for their devotion, their commitment to study of Torah and performance of mitzvot, and it was these worst of situations that brought forth the most powerful expression of devotion to God when it means self-sacrifice. In English, Mesirat Nefesh is translated as self-sacrifice. It means to be able to give away everything. I'm not doing what I really want or like or enjoy. I'm doing what I feel I must. I'm sacrificing. So that's how we understood this previously. And the Rebbe is reframing this. He says, no, no, no. Don't translate kosis as crushed. Translate it as shaken. And it's not about the suffering. It's not about the pain. It's not about the torture or the difficulty. It's not about martyrdom. It's about being shaken by the Galut reality. That the Galut reality, the fact that we are ultimately distant from our proverbial Father's table. We aren't at one with God. We aren't able to experience godliness and divinity. Spirituality seems fictitious to us. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's not something we taste or see or touch or feel. It's not, it's not real in the way we define reality, earthy material reality. And a person's in Golos. But deep down, everybody wants to feel God. In the language of Chassidus, every single Yid has a Ratzon HaMiti, a true will. And the true will is that there should be a revelation of divinity. So, what does this mean in English? What does it mean for everyday people? Gilea This is a fancy Hebrew terminology. 
if you're uh, living in a Haredi world or you live in a world in which you're familiar with the syntax of Sidis, yeah, you say, Gilea Lakus, I heard that word, of course, I want Gilea Lakus. I don't know if you want it. What's the proof you don't want it? I mean, we do it. The Mimer says we do want it. But overtly, what do we want? You know, somebody comes along and, and, and is giving a stock tip, all of a sudden our ears perk up because we want money. Somebody's offering food, all of a sudden everybody's looking. Sometimes there are things which attract us, so it can be sinful. And we all have a natural inclination to look or it catches our attention. <laughs> when, when, the, when people who are sport aficionados are, are sitting in the stands and, and the game goes into overtime, nobody says, oh my gosh, I gotta leave. I can't believe this lunacy. I'm out of here. And walk out. Are you kidding? They're so excited. They, they paid $75 for their tickets to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs and now they're gonna get to watch another five minutes and they're losing. <laughs> it's like a, a dream come true for a a nice, well-coiffed Canadian Jew. Doesn't, but the rabbi should speak five minutes longer? This is ridiculous. How dare he do this to us? It's Gilea Lekus. It's, uh, it's you're learning about godliness. People have no difficulty watching some kind of show or movie that's uh, two hours long, but they can't, they can't be uh, focused for more than ten minutes. For ten minutes. It can't be five minutes. Tick-tock it, rabbi. Just give me something fast. <laughs> you didn't say TikTok the movie you watched. You wanted to watch the whole Star Wars. So, th- because in our material reality, Gililikus is not something we know we want. We want things that, you know, satisfy us in material, menial, pedestrian, very camp, ordinary way. Like who are we fooling? And everybody in their own language, everybody in their own syntax. So, so somebody else doesn't like this, he doesn't have this craving, that lust, he has a craving, a lust for honor, for glory, for, for being feted or appreciated. There's things that uh, attract us. Everybody loves themselves. Everybody loves talking about themselves, hear about themselves. Hear about God? Let's hear about God. So no, the Bible says, really, that's not true. Really, really deep down what we want is a giliolikus. And the proof would be that here's a person who's got everything. They got all the fame, all the fun. All the glory and the goodness. What don't they have? They don't have godliness. How could you have godliness? We're in Gullus. Gullus precludes having godliness in a revealed way. And then the Rebbe adds here, when a person contemplates and this idea that's talked about in the Talmud Yerushalmi and mentioned in the Medrash Tilim, that our sages taught whoever didn't have a Beit HaMikdash built in his day, it's as if the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed in his day. So this is like something that can, can shake you up. So a person's shaken up by this. He's shaken. And, and he's, he, he's not like comfortable with himself. He's not, he's not comfortable with Galut. He says something is missing. Life isn't easy. It's not relaxed. Some, something's wrong with this picture. And you would never know that. You see, in the first iteration, in the, in the crushed iteration, in the suffering iteration... What does a person yearn for? He just wants the suffering to end. He just wants to live a normal Jewish life. He just wants to be able to go to a synagogue like every other Jew goes to a synagogue and learn Torah like every other Jew learn Torah and not have to worry about can I keep the Shabbat or does it going to spell arrest or exile for me or starvation. So he just wants to be able to, you know, live a life which feels good spiritually. feels balanced. And here he's living that life. This is the new iteration. You start to see this is the Rebbe's new take. He's living the life, not only materially, 
I'm not talking about the two-car garage. I'm not just talking about the, the, green, the green grass in the front yard. I'm not talking about a person having what he needs and he goes on his vacations. Not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that he's living a life with spiritual satisfaction. He's, he or she is going to, to Torah classes and involved in davening and they do communal work and they're helping others. They feel, feel a sense of satisfaction. And yet, they know that ultimately we don't really know God. That spirituality is looked at by most people as fictitious. And there's a part of them inside, deep down, says like, yeah, it's kind of fictitious. I don't really know what that means. I can't really describe it. I, I don't have an experiential background or backboard to be able to, to kind of bounce it off or, or frame it by. I, I don't know. I heard about this. We read about it. We study about it. We don't actually experience it. And, and a person is shaken by this. So that was this is the first. And this is, this is novel. It's new. It's a, it's a new take. It's a new take on how we look, how should we look at Galut. And, and that that kind of yearning for godliness is a very deep expression. It's called Ma'or. Source of illumination, not or rays, radiance, or effulgence. So I'm just recapping still. I'm sorry, we're like uh, 20 minutes and I'm still recapping. So now let's take out our shovels and begin the excavation. Now we're going to dig deep. Deba now on the surface seems to be addressing a tiny minority within a minority maybe one person in the generation, maybe one out of 20 million Jewish people. Like, like, like a, but an anomaly amidst, amidst anomalies, which on the surface seems very strange. Like, so, so what if this is true for everybody except for that anomaly? Well, the Rebbe wants it to be true everywhere. And, and this is on the, the, the mimer continues now. So even when a person is functioning in a very high spiritual level, he's living in a very rarefied state of consciousness. What would that mean? What does it mean to live in a rarefied state of consciousness? So it means that the a revelatory experience of divinity radiates for him. He, he, he can relate to godliness in a revelatory way. Bidugma, in a manner that is paradigmatic, of the gilui shahoya bezman habayit, the revelation that existed at the time of the house. It's a euphemism for the holy temple, Beit HaMikdash. Euphemistically, in Torah literature, it's called Zman Habayit, the time of the house. So, I want to I want to just elucidate over here. I want to just clarify and elucidate. A rarefied state of existence is not an imaginary state or a meditative state, because those are essentially expressions of self. What most people call spiritual, feeling spiritual, feeling uplifted, experiencing inspiration, 
is really self-expression. Self-expression on a slightly more rarefied way. And people take a tremendous joy or satisfaction in effective self-expression. Every human being likes to express himself. We all want to express ourselves. On some level, the, the yearning or craving for intimacy is about self-expression on some level. People like to talk. People like the freedom to converse. They want to be able to be themselves, not be shackled or inhibited. If you look at all of the social movements that are sweeping across the world now, they're all about self-expression with a tremendous emphasis on self. You will seldom hear people speak about their responsibilities towards others, but you will often hear them speak about the rights and the respect they expect from others. When a person talks about my rights, what he's talking about is my self-expression. It's my right to speak freely. It's my right to act out my feelings, my cravings, my yearnings, my desires in a way that makes me feel good about myself. It's all about me. In as many words, this is a modern iteration of pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry purported that one could not know God. God is beyond us. So we had to create things we could relate to because it's about us. We need to relate. And if we created gods in our own image, then we could relate to those gods. And that God would relate to the big God that nobody can relate to. We relate to ourselves. We didn't seek self-transcendence. We sought self-indulgence much like people are seeking today. They're looking for indulgence. But as many have observed, the problem with our modern society is its obsession with rights rather than responsibilities. Incidentally, both take you to the same place. If I'm responsible to respect others, if I'm responsible to provide for the needy, if I'm responsible to defend the meek or weak, if I'm responsible to be respectful to every other person, if I'm responsible to ensure that my behavior isn't criminal and doesn't infringe, if I'm responsible for all of those things, then people won't be disrespected, people won't be harmed, people won't be denigrated, people won't be, won't be persecuted. How, how can I do those things? I'm responsible. People won't be neglected. They won't be left behind. On the other hand, if I, it's my right to be fed and have a roof over my head, it's my right to be able to say what I want, how I want. It's my right to express myself in any which way, as long as I'm not harming anybody else. It's my right to expect that society will allow me to be who I wish rather than conforming. In, in both instances, people are going to be treated respectfully. One, because it's my right and you are obligated. You have to because it's my right. Or number two, it's my responsibility. Who am I to judge you? Who am I to put you down? I have to respect every single human being. Each is created in the image of God. We can agree to disagree. 
objectively speaking, but I have to respect you. And I can't harm anybody. I can't shame anybody. I can't harm them intellectually, socially, emotionally, spiritually. That's not, my, that's not me fulfilling my responsibility. So it takes us into a very similar kind of society, but in fact, they're worlds apart. We are not speaking about a person who is filled with self-expression, what the world today calls, quote, end quote, spiritual people. Spiritual people, by and large, are people usually with enormous egos who are enamored with their own self-expression. They may be musicians, they may be poets, they may be talentless, but they are enamored with what they call a deeper vibe and a deeper consciousness. And, and they're always about, I need to feel and I need to know. And their question is always, is it going to be meaningful? So is, is somebody a good rabbi or a bad rabbi? I'm just using an example of something which <laughs> drives me crazy. To uh, officiate at my chuppah, how does it make me feel? Oh, he, that rabbi is a very good rabbi. What's so good about him? He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't, he doesn't, know, he doesn't know halacha. It's like an embarrassment to the rabbinical trade. Yeah, but he makes it very meaningful. What does that mean? The rabbi's job is to make sure that things are done correctly, properly. He's not a psychotherapist. Now, of course, if a rabbi can give you spiritual meaning and teach you deeper meaning of things, that's a beautiful thing. But first and foremost, he has to know a halacha. He has to, he has to know how to do it right. But our society doesn't have any care for right and wrong. There is no right and wrong. Everything is whatever you want it to be. The main thing is how I feel. It's all about I. Okay, so... All of that has nothing to do with this mimer. And that's not the person we're talking about. When we talk about somebody who's spiritual, what we're really talking about is a person, Shemeir. Meir means it radiates into him. Not he expresses outward. Meir, he's receiving. <laughs> not giving. Not self-expressing. He's self-abnegating. He's made himself transparent. Because this is a person who no longer has agendas and axes to grind. Because this is a person who is entirely and wholly subservient to Hashem. That's what a person can be living in exilic times. And they're still feeling the presence of Hashem. Because the more you feel yourself, the less you feel God. And the less you feel yourself, the more you're open to feeling Hashem. You may end up just with feeling the needs of others, which is also pretty good, by the way. But ultimately, to really feel God, you have to transcend self entirely. So people like this, people like this are not going to be experiencing what we would call deprivation in a time of Galut, because, because they're actually feeling really close to God or they feel God's closeness to them. So what about those people? Where's the kos more for them? That's ostensibly this opening kind of question. So the Rebbe says, Mikol Mokim. Nonetheless, Because they're hearing the music, but nobody else is hearing the music. Because they're seeing and feeling this divine truth, but nobody else is seeing and feeling the divine truth. Muchach, 
This alone proves Shagam Hagilu that even that which is revealed to them, Hugilui Mugbal, it is a limited kind of revelation. You see, God is everywhere. God's presence is everywhere. Why don't you and I see God's presence? Why don't you and I feel God's presence? The answer is because all we see is our own needs. All we feel is our own self-importance. And that blocks us from seeing the presence of God. In fact, it blocks us from seeing the presence and needs of others. There's a beautiful story that can shake you. It shook me when I read it. That's not Jewish. It's not a Jewish story, but it's a, it's a human story, but it can shake us, and it can be used as a metaphor insofar as understanding the spiritual concept that I'm trying to share now. So the story is about a successful, in, in the story it's a lawyer, but it could be anybody. He's a very successful person. He just finished a very successful negotiation, won a case, whatever it is. And he's very wealthy. He's been very, very well remunerated for his services. He bought himself a beautiful new car. The sleekest, most, most wonderful new car in the market. A convertible. And he's driving through on a beautiful sunny day. And he just, he's feeling like a million bucks. And all of a sudden, he hears this huge thud. A harsh sound at the side of his car. And he looks around and he realizes somebody's just thrown a rock at his car. And, and his anger is rising. He pulls over and he throws open the door and he's ready to kill. And he bellows, who did that? The little kid up the block goes, I did. The man says, you threw a rock at my car? And he begins to menacingly move towards the kid. And the kid says, I did. Why did you do that? He screams at him. He says, well, my little brother fell out of his wheelchair. And I, I kept crying for people to help me, but nobody's stopping to help me. And, I, and you were in a convertible, and I was screaming at the top of my lungs, but you didn't hear me. So I had no choice. I threw a rock. And like all of a sudden, the man has this epiphany. He's shaken to his core. He realizes that he's been so saturated with his own libido and self and, 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 and success and he couldn't even hear the cries of a child in a wheelchair. And the story goes that this you know, person literally experiences a, a crisis of, of, of self-identity and has like a meltdown. He helps the child back in, and he tearfully begs forgiveness from this young boy and he helps them go home. And the story is just a story, but as the story goes, the man never fixed his car again. He left a dent in his car, so he would always remember to hear the sound of a child in need. So it's a very profound story. Why? Because, because the story is Narishkeit, but the, the point is that whether it's the car or the clothing, whether it's the, 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 the physical or material or sensual pleasure or libido or satisfaction or accomplishment, what happens is we become, that's all we hear. So we're not, so to speak, smelling the flowers. We're not even noticing the sunlight. We don't have time to notice these truisms, these things that are always there. We just never notice them. Never notice them. I remember many years ago visiting a man who was very successful in a particular field, enormously wealthy. He was living in Beverly Hills. He was very sick. He got sick, 
maybe he had to, he was battling his very bad illness. And I came to visit this fellow, this person. He was a very fine person. And I remember being so shaken by his appearance. He looked like a, an emaciated shadow of his former self. And he said to me, you know, I live in this beautiful home. This beautiful home. I said, I even have beautiful washrooms. and I have a beautiful bath. I, I never took the time to notice how beautiful my home is. And he said to me in this thin, illness-racked voice, like, now I'm taking the time to notice all these beautiful things, to appreciate these beautiful things. And the sad thing was he only lived another few months. But why wouldn't a person notice those things? It was always there. just didn't notice it. God's presence is everywhere. We don't notice God's presence. We're too busy with ourselves. We don't listen to the sound of, so to speak, divine foot footprints or footsteps because we're too busy listening to everything else, all the other narishkeit in life. Here you have a person who's actually, he's seeing, he's seeing and hearing. He's, he's like in tune. It's like in tune. You know, they say there's certain sounds that, that only dogs can hear. Certain sounds like like children here that other people later you, you tune out the sounds. There's certain colors that the, the people aren't capable of seeing. So, so we have this person who through intense toil at self-transcendence, not self-expression, self-transcendence, through extraordinary obedience and love and loyalty to Hashem and to other people, that this person transcends self. So much so that they actually start to hear and see what nobody else can hear and see. And we're going to call that Gileolikus. <laughs> and don't ask me to describe it to you because I can't. We're all in the same boat, as they say. So the person has Gileolikus. The sounds are there. It's real. Godliness is real for him. This could be one person in a generation. It could be a handful of people. So nonetheless, the gili is mugbul. Why is the gili mugbul? Why is the gili mugbul? Why is it limited? Because kishemeir gili and seif ablig vul hagili If the infinitude, what we call no limitation of divinity, would fully reveal itself, it would be impossible for it not to saturate all of existence. The fact that it doesn't overwhelm. The fact that it doesn't simply wash over and, and eclipse everything else is because it isn't being revealed. Even for that extraordinarily sublime individual, it's not being revealed. Because if it was the real bligvul, bligvul in Hebrew means, in English translated, no limitation, infinite. If it was true infinity, if it was a revelation of God's true infinite essence, nothing would be able to contain it. Nothing would be able to, to cover it or conceal it. It would have to be felt by everybody. <laughs> we can ignore the sounds. We can ignore the sights when they are finite and limited, not when they're infinite. I'm not even talking about something which is not infinite, but just that the, the volume goes sky high. It's impossible not to hear it. The, the image is so searing. It's so intense. It's so, it's so powerful. Everybody has to notice it. That's all gvul. That's all gvul. That's all limitation. If it was real bligvul, if it was real infinitude, everybody, including the deaf, the dumb, the blind, so to speak, in the metaphor, they would all have to see it too. Nobody could be deaf to it. Nobody could be blind to it. It would be impossible because those are limitations. And we're talking here about bligvul. 
If there's one place, what's referred to euphemistically as a distant corner. It's funny, we talk about the round world, the globe. We always knew it was round. Torah literature has many, many references to the world being round and flat. But we, we still call it a corner. Because a corner is like the hardest place to get to. You know, our fingers are like pudgy. You can't get it into the little corner. There's always a little bit of air you can't get to. So the deepest corner, the deepest pocket, the angle where the angle meets, even Pinli Dachas, She'ein Meir Shom that there's still a place, and a place doesn't have to mean geography, although it can mean geography as well. It means geography, it means consciousness, it means civilization, it means time. If there is some kind of rubric, framework of reality, where there isn't Gilealikos, because this divine revelation, even in the place, put that in quotation marks, even in the place, the space, the consciousness, the, the, the milieu, where it is revealing itself, where it is radiating. So what did the Rebbe say now? He said, he said like this, he said that in our exilic world, even a tzaddik who doesn't have that limitation, he would still be shaken. Why would he be shaken? He's not missing anything. Because the gili alakus, because the divine revelation that he is experiencing is limited and that would shake him. It would probably satisfy you and me. Uh, we wouldn't even know what to do with it. But for this person, He's, he's still going to be shaken. Now, of course, the question, the question could be asked, like, um, we're talking about galut. And we just described a person for whom galut doesn't register. In the footnote, the Rebbe says, um, what is known, and he quotes something from Pelach which is, a teaching said over in the name of the Alter Rebbe, that the B'shimon Bar Yochai, Lefnei the B'shimon Bar Yochai, Leinechrev HaBayas. That before the B'shimon Bar Yochai, the Beis HaMikdash wasn't destroyed. It was, the Beis HaMikdash was there. Now the Beis HaMikdash is here in a spiritual way. But for B'shimon Bar Yochai, he didn't need more than the spirit. He, he was a person who lived in the world of spirit. He didn't need it in bricks and mortar. Dense, physical. The physics were irrelevant to him. He didn't live in physics. Physics meant nothing to him. So if it's about galut, and here we describe the person whom the galut doesn't touch, so he's still supposed to be shaken up, but he's not in galut then. I'm going to try to answer this question as we go on. But this, I'm just saying this is like an inherent problem here. What is, it, what is, it, what is, what, what is the Rebbe trying to say? Now here there's like an interjection. It's an interjection. It's not, it's not really the... It doesn't contribute to the essential thrust of the point that's being made. It frames it. It maybe brings it forth in, 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 a, in a crisper, kind of clearer way. The Rebbe suggests that this idea that a person who exists in a very sublime exalted kind of spiritual consciousness who still would feel a sense of aching emptiness because the godliness that he or she feels 
isn't the kind of godliness that everybody else can feel. So it's limited. He says, this could be the meaning. Zeba doesn't say meaning. I'll read you the words, but I'm going to tell you why it has to be meaning. This is what's brought in the Maimur of the Alter Rebbe. The Issa B'Tikunim, that it says in Tikunim, which is the Kadus of the Zohar, if there would be one tzaddik who would do tshuva fully, Mashiach, Mashiach would have to come. Why? Tshuva doesn't mean repentance. Tshuva means a sense of renewal and return, a sense of restoration of the true essence. Through complete, absolute, perfect tshuva, you bring forth the infinite light of God. Once that revelation comes, then it's got to be everywhere. So actually, I, 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 I went to look in the Mimer of the Alter Rebbe, which is found in a very interesting book called Maimur Maktsarim. These like small little vignettes, short little teachings of the Alter Rebbe. And it doesn't, it doesn't say that. It doesn't, I mean, let me tell you what it does say. It says that what the tzaddik does affects the people, and what the people do affects the tzaddik. He says Moses was negatively affected by the bad behavior of the Jewish people. They literally impacted him. They brought him down. And the tzaddik, by virtue of his perfection and avodah Hashem, enriches the people. Because there's this intrinsic bonding connection between the nation and between the tzaddik, so he says, If one tzaddik would be perfect, it would have to impact the rest of the people. The fact that the people aren't impacted, it's because, excuse me, the tzaddik isn't a, a thousand percent perfect. Because if, if not, he, he couldn't be perfect. So if he's not perfect, that's why they're wholly imperfect. And Alter Rebbe says that this is the idea of Mashiach, because Mashiach means that evil and good are separated forever. Right now there's this mix of good and evil that's been that way since the sin of the forbidden fruit. But once it becomes separated, so then evil will have no trace of goodness left, it'll perish, it will simply vaporize. And as long as there is a little bit of evil mixed into good, a little bit of selfishness and self-awareness mixed into selflessness, so then there can never be what we call toiv gomor, never be perfect good. And that's why Mashiach is not here. But if a tzaddik would do tshuva, 100%, which tshuva means to shed that skin of selfishness and self-awareness, then Mashiach would come. But the Altarebbe doesn't say anything about bligvul or gvul, limit or non-limit. So clearly the Rebbe is learning pshat. The Rebbe, the Rebbe actually is giving a philosophical understanding of the Alter Rebbe's words. He says, in other words, what the Alter Rebbe means to say is that real tshuva brings beligvul. And so the way the Rebbe understands this mimer on Tikkuni Zohar, it, it becomes the basis, the foundation for this novel idea that he's introducing here. But number one, this is a novel idea. It's a novel idea. It, it, this idea is not articulated anywhere. Number one. And number two, to see the Alter Rebbe's Mimer as such is also novel. It doesn't say that. that the, these words, even this idea is not found in that Mimer. 
the, the verbiage, the syntax, the, the ideas that are talked about are good and bad mixed or not. The Rebbe is like peeling away the layers. So if you, if you drill down to it on a deeper way, what is it really saying? It really goes into what's called gvul and bligvul. So, again, to the best of my knowledge, this is, this is all new ground. We're, like, uh, we're now on terra incognita. So, from the fact that this person doesn't have the full brunt, the full force, the full intensity, the full range of experience, if you will, or the non-range, <laughs> the beyond, the transcendence of the infinite light, this, this, this shakes him up. It doesn't crush. It shakes. He's shaken up. He's cusses. He's cusses. That, that shakes him up. Up until now, we talked about deprivation, the lack thereof. I'm locked out of the house. I want to be at my father's table. I want to be a kid, man. I want to go home. So I, I'm, I'm not allowed in the house. So I'm shaken by it. Sometimes we're shown a mirror of our own inadequacy, our own imperfection, our own, our own egocentric existence. And it, it, it's like it's jarring. It shakes us. Like, who is that disfigured, hideous soul? Well, it's you. It's, a sh- it's like, a, it's like a, it shakes you when, you when you realize how crass we can be sometimes. Because we're crass. <laughs> because, because we're inappropriate. But it's like talking about a tzaddik over here. In the mirror, you see a reflection of pure beauty. Yeah, but because it's not felt elsewhere, then whatever beautiful spirituality... Whatever exquisite, extraordinary energy the tzaddik is now exposed to, it isn't the highest form. It isn't the highest level. So, how does that equal a lack? You know, it's like levels of perfection. But how does that equal something missing? And this is a, almost a missing link here in the thesis. So the Rebbe now leans in to a kisviarizal. Again, this is very new. It's very new. But just like what we said before is new. And the Rebbe kind of bases it. He says, and this is the meaning of what says in the Maimur of Dalta Rebbe. So here, the Rebbe leans into a Kisvi Arizal. And in the Kisvi Arizal, in Amparsha's Vayera, it talks about uh, the mitzvah of Bikur Cholim. Abraham had a brit milah, circumcision, that weakened him physically. So now God comes to visit him. And this is the origin of the mitzvah of visiting the sick and trying to bring them a better feeling, which helps in their recovery. So the Arizal says, that chola, the concept of sickness, lack of full functioning, full functionality, because sickness, organically speaking, means that functionality is impaired. So this impairment or disablement, or obstruction, or limitation to functionality, or to equilibrium, to balance, to feeling good. So there's actually four different ways the ineffable name of God can be written out. Yud ke vav ke can be written yud vav dalad, yud yud dalad. There's various ways to write it out. And same thing with hey, hey can be written hey, hey, hey aleph, hey yud yud, various ways. So each way of writing out these names 
is going to have a different amount. So we actually have four different methods, four different ways of spelling it out. There's something called Shema, which has the grammatic equivalent of 45. Then we have the Shem Ban, which is 52. And then we have something called Av and Sag. We have 72 and 63. Okay, they all represent different levels. This is not just like a gematria word game. So he says that Chola is the Shem Ma. It's the level of divinity which is called Ma, but it's 49, not, not 45. He says, yeah, true. But then there are four letters. So sometimes in gematria, each letter counts for one. So the way you write at Yud Kevavke turns out to be 45. But then we add the four letters and that gives you 49. So this is, this is pretty good. person's at the full experience of the ineffable name of God. That's the level of closeness that this individual is reaching. And Arizal says, V'shem memtes kiminyan chola. That's the grammatic equivalent of the word sick, ill, infirm. Why? Because there are 50 gates of understanding. And chosr mimenu shadhanun is missing the 50th gate. Everything has a spiritual source. Because the tzaddik is missing the 50th gate spiritually, that's why physically the body fell to disrepair. The reason that the tzaddik is going into the state of disrepair is in order to enable him to reach the 50th gate. But no tzaddik ever reached the 50th gate. The, the story is told. Rizal writes that when Moshe Rabbeinu on the last day of his life goes to Harnavo, and Harnavo says means Nunbo, that the 50th gate, Moshe Rabbeinu like entered into the 50th gate, but he was no longer like a regular terrestrial person anymore. He was already burying himself, so to speak, on Mount Nevo. So the tzaddik has perfection, but the perfection is still, he falls short. He can't get to the 50th gate. And because the Arizal calls it a chola, so the Rebbe says it's not unreasonable then to reframe the tzaddik's deprivation in so far as the tzaddik having extraordinary divine revelation, an extraordinary revelatory experience, but it's not infinite. It's still an act of, or a reality of representing deficiency. It's still spiritual deprivation. It's not like he could travel more. He's actually missing something. He's infirm. And that resolves Mahadash. He comes with this tremendous idea that that's called the Cholot. And from this, the Rebbe wants to say that the Tzaddik is therefore experiencing a deprivation. Now, again, my problem is the Tzaddik doesn't have a destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. We just described a person who doesn't have galut. So the answer goes something like this. It's true that this person is living the way they used to live in the time of the Beis HaMikdash. But in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, nobody was asking for Mashiach, I imagine. Even though the Rambam says it's one of the 13 principles of our faith. But we had the Beis HaMikdash. In order to realize that something isn't, we had to lose what we had. It's because there was a state of Galut. And then there was a tzaddik who was able to trans- transcend that exilic reality and still feel the presence of Hashem. But ultimately that tzaddik knows that he's missing something. And the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And there is no Beis HaMikdash. And there's no godly revelation at all outside of what he or she is able to experience. Aha. So this makes them realize that they're actually missing something. So it's almost like their reality is a non-Galut reality. But because there is a Galut reality, it makes them realize that they're missing something too. 
And that shakes them up. And it's only because of the Galut reality that they come to this awareness or realization. So very nice. This is talking to the, the slenderest percentage one could possibly imagine. The Rebbe says, no, 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 no. This idea is relevant and meaningful and it should touch us too. The Yadua, it's known, Masha Omar Atzamach Tzedek, or Shekosav Atzamach Tzedek, we would hear from our Rebbe, our Master, Solvin Eden, Admur Azok and Alter Rebbe. This is found in Sheirish Mitzvah's Hatfila of the Tzemach Tzedek in Taimiyah Mitzvah. That it says, and here the Rebbe puts it in Yiddish, that they would hear the Alter Rebbe say, Ich will ze garnist, I want nothing. Ich will ne deinel ganeden, and ich will ne deinel amhabe. I don't want your paradise, I don't want your world to come. I want you, you the essence of divinity. There's a story told that Al Rebbe was uh, once holding his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, on his lap. And the Tzemach Tzedek was a little boy, and his grandfather said, Where is Zayda? Where is Zayda? Where's your grandfather? And the little boy in the story grabs Zayda's beard. Al Rebbe had a long beard. He said, No, that's Zayda's beard. That's not Zayda. He grabbed his nose, that's Zayda's nose. Grabbed his finger, that's Zayda's finger. And he was lost in thought. And Alter Rebbe went back to whatever he was doing. And the little Tzemach Tzedek said, Zayda! And Alter Rebbe said, what? And Alter Rebbe said, ah, there's Zayda. You get God's attention. God himself. Whatever that means. And this is what Alter Rebbe wanted. He wanted not revelation, not remuneration. Not being able to understand and appreciate the deepest secrets and the mysteries. He wanted a relationship with God himself. When a person spends time with a baby child or baby grandchild, what are they looking for? A good conversation? What, some kind of uh, interesting, meaningful thing? You want to be with the child. And then when the child smiles, the baby smiles like, wow, the baby smiles, it's a big deal. It's probably gas anyway. Nobody talking. The baby noticed me. It's like a, maybe a metaphor, a pale metaphor for when God notices us. When the child just wants attention from his father or mother. He wants to see a smile on the face and know that he pleased them to no end. And touches him so deeply. It's the greatest gift a parent can give a child. He didn't buy him a toy. He didn't take him to an amusement park. He didn't feed him the food he loves. No, no, no. Just gave him attention. And it's the most amazing thing. <laughs> I shared this before, but I'm going to share it again because it maybe makes, it helps make the point. And if you heard it already, forgive me. So I've, uh, I, was, I was a little boy and I was we were living in Hartford, Connecticut. And I went to the Hartford Hebrew Academy, which wasn't a very uh, observant school. I think I was the only Shomer Shabbat kid in the whole school. Anyway, so it was Mother's Day. So in nursery school, we all made something for our mother. And I still remember what I made. I made a, it was a piece of, pieces of wood and these like, um, you know, like, like glass beads, you know, like colored glass beads. So I painted that piece of wood yellow and I, and I, and I, I glued these glass beads to the, the, to the piece of wood, and on the back of the piece of wood, our, our teacher put a little pin. And, and I thought it was gorgeous. I was, uh, I was five years old, I thought it was beautiful. And I remember bringing it home, and I gave it to my mother for Mother's Day. They thought about Mother's Day. Okay, Mother's Day, give it to her. 
And my mother said, it's so beautiful. It's the most beautiful piece of uh, jewelry. And I believed her. Why, why should I? <laughs> to, me, to me, I thought it was great. And then my, my parents had to go out. I, I don't know, it was a wedding. I still remember this. I don't know what it was. I remember my mother was wearing around her shoulders like a dark blue kind of like a, I don't know, like a wraparound with like silver embroidery on it. And when she left the house, she, she pinned it with this, this brooch that I made, this, 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 uh, and it was like, I, I, I was so happy. I, I can't, I, 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 how do I know I was so happy? Because I can still remember it now. It's like, it's more than 45 years later. I still, I still remember it like it happened yesterday. I can still remember that feeling of satisfaction. Now, I'm sure my parents went around the block. My mother did not wear that to the wedding. I'm, I'm, I mean, I only realized that many years later. <laughs> but your father or mother, when you're a little child, shows you attention. Just they appreciate and value you and what you did. It's endlessly touching. It talks to the purest, most innocent part of our core, of our being. So in the metaphor, God is our Father. Now, the Rebbe was saying, I don't want you to buy me toys. I don't want you to show me nice things. I don't want you to take me on a trip. I don't want you to take me to Canada's Wonderland. I want you, I want you, I want you. Imagine that. I don't want Ganeiden. I don't want, I don't want a, a, a gorgeous experience. I don't want the, this beautiful, wonderful pleasure which we can't even fathom. It's, we know about sensual, libido, physical pleasure. This is a pleasure which is way beyond what we could imagine. Far more thrilling, far more exhilarating, far more uplifting, far more satisfying than anything we could possibly imagine. And al Rebbe was able to understand that despite these amazing pleasures and these intoxicating, beautiful things, he just wants God's attention. Now, because you and I have no clue of what the pleasures of the soul are about, we don't even realize how novel it is, how extraordinary it is. But somebody like Dalton Rebbe would. <laughs> so Dalton Rebbe used to say this. And the Rebbe says it's an amazing thing now, okay? So this is a, like an expression of a tzaddik. It was heard. He was heard saying this. He was overheard. He wasn't trying to demonstrate anything to anybody. He was overheard saying this, almost to himself, to God. And the Rebbe now interjects in the brackets again. The Peter Shoyanishma, it would be heard. It wasn't uh, at the last moments of Yom Kippur in spiritual ecstasy that the Rebbe would mumble to himself, this is the way this man lived. He lived with a sense of yearning and desire. He was burning up with a craving to be close to God. All the time we'd hear them say these things. So he used to say it. And then, now it was publicized by the Tzimach Tzedek. It's printed in a book. So now everybody knows about it. Okay, so there was a tzaddik. He's, he's burned with this powerful yearning, with this burning, craving desire. Okay, it's amazing. Great. No, 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 no. Because that's what was the ingredients of his existence. That, 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 that defined him. Not sometimes. That defined who he was. And because the tzimach tzaddik chose to print this and to publicize it. Nitan hakoyach lekol echad echad the power was given to every one of us. That we should actually be able to reveal our deepest, truest will. And our deepest, truest will is the Rotson should be Gilea That we want God and God alone. 
Not we want Mashiach because when Mashiach will come, we won't suffer anymore. And we won't have to live in fear anymore. And we won't have to be, have anxiety and worries. No, 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 no. We want Mashiach because then we'll be at one with God. And as long as I'm not at one with God, I'm missing something. So I'm unhappy. Or I'm dissatisfied. I'm shaken. I'm shaken. So much so, when this is not the case, at a time of exilic dispersion, at a time of deprivation, at a time in which we lack any kind of revelation or awareness of God's presence. We don't even get the, the, the effulgence, the radiance isn't even there. So, and, and, and then you're, you're wanting more than just a base on Migdash, you want more than just light. You want the core, you want the essence, you want to spend time with God Himself. He's shaken. He's totally shaken. He pleads, he begs, he asks three times a day, or yes, or more often. He says, Our eyes see a restoration, a return to Zion. Zion means the base of Migdash. It should happen with compassion. Because then there will be a world in which godliness is known. And then there will be Tegilio Atzmos. And there will be a world where the essence of God will be known. Not I want Mashiach because uh, I don't have money to pay my bills. Not I want Mashiach because somebody's suffering. And the person suffering crushed me. So I want Mashiach. I want Mashiach because I just heard another story of anti-Semitic persecution and it frightens me and it shakes me as a Jew and I want to live in a world where I don't have to worry about that and my children shouldn't have to face that. So I want Mashiach. That is not what Mashiach is about. Of course, when Mashiach will come, all of those bad things will no longer be because when Mashiach comes, there's no bad in the world. But it's not Mashiach. And that's not what we should be wanting. What we should be wanting is oneness with God. And even in a world where everybody is in love with each other and everybody does only good and everybody is sensitive and compassionate and spiritually minded and there's no lack to speak of. Everything is great. No enemies. No hate, no persecution, never happens such a thing. But imagine, there will be a perfect, idyllic Garden of Eden reality, except that there's no God. You can't see God's presence. The person is shaken by that. Tell me, whenever in history did the Jewish people have something remotely like this? Hardly ever. Maybe in the golden age for Spanish Jewry, maybe. A Jew has no limitations, no glass ceiling. A Jew can become the president, the prime minister. A Jew can hold the highest office, make the most money, be appreciated and celebrated in the centers of culture and civilization. At least it was like that a few years ago. And yet, and, and a Jew could have spiritual fulfillment. He could be learning Torah, and he could be davening. He could have everything he could possibly want. What's missing? God's presence is missing. And he's shaken. He's shaken because he never realized he was missing God's presence. He always thought he was missing peace and quiet, tranquility, wherewithal and ability to live like a Jew. And now he's got that. He's still shaken. Why? Because 
He wants God himself. This is an unbelievable thing that Rebbe says. This is the novelty of our generation. This is what we can experience that no generation has experienced before. And this is the deeper, ultimate meaning of Kosis Lamoyer. What reveals our truest will is crushed, shaken, to be more accurate. Shaken to the point that our core, our luminary, our essence, our truest will is revealed. Because he's shaken. Why is he shaken? Because he's in Golos. And Golos means that I don't feel the presence of God. This brings me to the core, to the essence. It reveals my true will. The fact that the will of every single Yid, really and truly, is divine revelation. It touches him to his very core. He's shaken by the lack thereof. And the Rebbe doesn't have to translate it again because he already translated it. Kosas means that he's shaken. That in time of Golos there is no divine revelation. This is the deepest essence of the Neshama speaking. But it's never been so quiet. We couldn't hear his voice. There was always so much noise. There was always so much trouble. There was always so much difficulty. We never got to hear that still little voice inside us that was saying, I don't want no persecution, no hate, no suffering, no, no sickness. No, I mean, besides all those things, what I really want is to be close to God. That's the essence of the neshama. Because our bond with God is an inherent, intrinsic bond that sometimes defies description. I want to conclude. You know, because I, 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 I always try to learn this and like, so what does it mean in the real world? So I just happened to come across an article today, a JTA article. It's a ridiculous, offensive, atheistic article. But you know, the Alter Rebbe, that Mimer says you have to be very careful how you judge others and never judge them and always look for... So the, 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 this article starts off with a joke about the Jewish atheist who comes to meet the big Apikoiris of Prague, the big heretic of Prague, and he comes to the man's house on Friday night and the guy's very busy. He says, shh, I'm lighting Shabbos candles. And then he has to make Kiddush and then he has to make Hamoitzi. And the atheist says, this is crazy. I don't understand. I was told you're the big Apikoiris of Prague and you haven't stopped doing mitzvahs. He says, of course not. He says, I'm an Apikoiris, not a non-Jew. That's like the joke. And, and, and in this fellow, in his article that he writes, it's a joke about the gap between what he calls, quote-unquote, between Jewish belief and Jewish practice. This idea that belief in God is less important to the religious Jew than performing the mitzvah. I'm not so sure if that's exactly so because it's actually a mitzvah to believe in God. It's one of the seven continuous mitzvahs, but this guy's an ignoramus, doesn't really know. Right? But, just, but he's coming from the secular world. He's a smart guy. He doesn't know any Torah in He never learned Chassidus. So his, the joke to him celebrates a worldview that he decided he figured out. And he decided that this worldview has a name and the worldview name is called fictionalism. What's fictionalism? And this is so pathetic, so ridiculous, 
and yet it's like so edifying. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you why. So, so this, this secular guy goes, fictionalism, and he quotes some philosopher, that it means pretending to follow a set of beliefs in order to reap the benefits of a set of actions. In a recent New York Times essay, this philosopher says, why does he continue to fast on Yom Kippur and observe Pesach? These are like the hardest mitzvahs, right? Why? He doesn't believe in God. The short answer is, it's just what we Jews do. He might say, he keeps me connected to a community I value. I'm saying like, Bistum is sugar. You, you have to fast. Tell everybody you're fasting. You actually have to observe Pesach? Tell them you're observing Pesach. <laughs> what, what is they going to know how you, you fasted or not? How do they going to know if you ate pizza or, or pretzels? Who's looking over your shoulder? No, he's connecting to his community. The longer answer is, when I feel the world is falling apart, I seek refuge in religious ritual. Not because I believe my prayers will be answered, he writes. The prayers we say remind me that evil has been with us, but we as people preserve, survive, and even thrive. That's what prayers Jewish people say. Reminds you that people preserve and thrive. Nobody else preserved. Nobody else survived. All the other ancient nations don't exist anymore. Only the Jewish people survived. Why did we survive? Because our prayers mean nothing. This is such pure poppycock, narishkeit, such so silly. And then he goes on to subscribe to some other guy that religious fictionalists hold the contentious claims of religion such as God exists or whatever are all strictly speaking false. But they think that religious discourse is, uh, is part of uh, and the practice of this discourse has a pragmatic value that justifies its use. In other words, it, and I say, forgive me for saying these, this stupidity, these narish words, that God is, in this fool, Nebuch, lost soul's perspective, God is useless fiction. <laughs> so, this like the most, it's not even offensive, it's, it's so inane, it, it, it's beyond insane that it could be even presented as intelligent. Moral character is cultivated and sustained through emotional engagement with fictional scenarios. In other words, life is one big joke. So a person's going to go, have moral character, do things which are self-sacrificial to your own self-detriment because you have moral character or conviction because of something fictitious. And he goes on to say that fictitionalists I know are maximalists when it comes to Jewish behavior and minimalists when it comes to God talk. As a synagogue friend of his put it, I don't believe in God, but I wouldn't want to disabuse my fellow worshipers of that notion. <laughs> why not? If, if you think it's not true, why not? Maybe it's real, huh? And according to the Pew 2020 study, 47% of Jewish adults say religion is somewhat a very important thing. Only 26 believe in the God of the Bible. So they don't know God. Of course, the, the God they don't believe in, I don't believe in either. But Nebuch, they don't know. And anyway, the, the article, it's a ridiculous article, but I love the way he finishes. He says, I'll admit that uh, fictitionalism hardly has the appeal of secularism. <laughs> no, uh, sensual libido is more fun than fictitionalism, right? Getting someone to take on a series of demanding, often inexplicable behaviors in the name of community and continuity is a hard sell. Of course it is. It makes no sense whatsoever. But I know that at least one fast-growing, successful Jewish stream that offers fictitionalism, his words, as a lure, Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic Average Movement. He writes, I doubt I could get a Chabad Lubavitch to agree with me. Don't doubt it. You definitely can't do it. But the Chabad outreach model, as opposed to the practice of his core followers, is centered on Jewish action. That's actually not opposed to the practice of his core followers. It's your misunderstanding of Chabad, but let's leave it alone. Is centered on Jewish action, not belief. Yes, it is centered on Jewish action, not belief. That's not Chabad, that's Torah. <laughs> Hamaisa hu ha'iker. 
The deed is the Jewish creed. Okay. And that's the impulse behind the mitzvah tanks and the advertisements imploring women to light Shabbos candles. True, because the Rebbe understood, by virtue of the illumination of Chassidus, the value of a single mitzvah rather than only a life that's filled with mitzvahs, but that each mitzvah is in infinite connection with God. The kids on the street offering tefillin uh, ask if you're Jewish. Yeah, I, I'm all grown up. I still do that. They don't ask you if you believe in God. Why is it my business? I have to go and check what somebody's belief is? Of course not. I need a young to do a mitzvah. It's an ethos that is part, part mysticism and part pragmatism. Okay, that makes you feel good. Chabad holds that preceding, that pre, the doing precedes believing. Chabad holds? Nasev nishma. <laughs> That's the way the Jewish people accepted the Torah. They said we will do. Then we'll try to learn and listen. Aside from the intrinsic value that each mitzvah has, mitzvah observance can also be contagious, is how one Chabad rabbi explained the one-off approach. Yeah, because a mitzvah, it means a yid is connected to Hashem. And when you have a connection through a mitzvah, it can always uncover the neshama. Agreeing to opt-in, even just once, can have far-reaching effects. You better believe it. There have been thousands of people, untold thousands, who have made permanent changes in their life or better because they agreed to try it once. Absolutely. Then he suggests that my colleague would agree with his colleague <laughs> who says that pretending makes the world a better place. Please, what absolute utter silliness and marishkeit. What's the truth? The truth is what we just learned. The truth is that this fellow's questions are good questions. And he, taka, he indeed does not understand these kind of questions never could have been asked before because Jews were too busy surviving. Now all of a sudden, Jews can be in the mainstream of society. Well, as long as they reject Israel or whatever else, anything, don't be too Jewish, but you can be the mainstream. You can, be, you, can be, you can have everything you want, so to speak. And yet, a yid keeps gravitating back to a mitzvah. What does the mitzvah afford him? People claim to be looking for meaning, and yet, in the end, they're looking for a mitzvah. What does the mitzvah do for you? It's not your feeling. It's not your understanding. It's an intrinsic connection to Hashem. The Rebbe taught us to understand and appreciate that Galut has now brought forth the deepest essence of every neshama. The Rebbe's ultimate wish and desire was that those little moments in which people could be shaken like uh, Michal David said, like shaking like a glow stick, maybe. That if we could keep shaking people with mitzvahs, if we could keep revealing that true will of every single yid, that the embers would become fires. And that all of us could be a light and a glow with a love for Hashem and a devotion to study of Torah and performance of mitzvahs. And each and every mitzvah comprises an independent moment of eternity in our relationship with God. And that if we can only keep attaching these little dots to create a continuous line of con continuous connection, if we can only keep stimulating more and more mitzvahs, if we could only keep tapping into our deepest will to be connected to Hashem, that this is the virtue of our time. This is the beauty, the glory of our unique situation. That that will finally bring us to the revelation that we deeply seek crave and, des and, and desire, even if we don't understand it, to be one with Hashem Himself. And that will, of course, be accomplished with the coming of Mashiach speedily and in our days to be continued.
I hope you'll come back for more. Have a gorgeous day.